forever. Dog. People who do comedy understand drama in a way because when we perform, we get an immediate response, which is if it's not funny, people don't laugh. You know, but when you do drama, you just kind of like trust that it, it's working. So, I mean, I think comics or people in comedy were trained to tell the truth. Like, we have to tell the truth. Otherwise, we don't get a laugh. Hello and welcome to Household Faces, the podcast where a character actor interviews other character actors. I'm your host, John Ross Bowie. You might know me from Speechless or The Big Bang Theory or several episodes of Episodes. You heard me, several episodes of Episodes. The Matt LeBlanc Show on Showtime a couple years ago. I played a psychiatrist. I did five episodes, but we shot them all in one day, which is a great way to get a recurring gig, by the way. Five episodes and you're wrapped by dinner. Sweet move. Uh, I was also in London for that, which was fun because it was my 42nd birthday, and uh, I, I, I celebrated turning 42 by going to the graveyard of Douglas Adams. If you know, you know. Our guest is Susie Nakamura. Susie and I uh, have kind of known each other for years. We have a bunch of mutual friends, as we'll we'll talk about. Uh, I know a lot of people who are sort of from Chicago, but she's actually from Chicago, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. We talk about her run on Broadway right now, where she is doing the farce POTUS. Uh, she also is in the new season of Dead to Me, the new season of Avenue 5. She did West Wing. She did a bunch of Second City, Dr. Ken. Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's a wonderful, diverse career where she has bounced around from comedy to drama. We talk about how uh, trauma and grief fuels comedy. It's a really, really fun conversation that begins with her essentially accusing me of pandering by wearing this shirt with Toshiro Mufuni on it. Just a coincidence. I'm just a guy who wears who wears Toshiro Mufuni shirts from time to time, just who I am. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Susie Nakamura. Did you wear that shirt for me? I did not. No, I just happened to have, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's a fair question. I have several Akira Kurosawa shirts. I'm pleased to report. This just happens to be the one I grabbed this morning. Shit. Um, no, that's not I'm giving you shit. That's I'm giving you shit. No, I I didn't. That's okay. That's fair. Are we keeping this? Let's keep this. Let's keep this moment here. I am wearing my Yajimbo shirt. No, I'll tell you what. I wear this shirt when I'm feeling shitty about my career because um because I'm in a lull or whatever. And because I like to think of myself as a as a Ronin just going from town to town and whoever needs my sword. <laughs> I'm I'm oh, just for hire. Great, that's a great analogy. <laughs> it gets me through some rough patches, Susie. I'm not going to lie to you. It gets me through some rough patches. Yeah, but here's the thing: like when we're unemployed, we 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 need that reset. We need that reset. We cannot sustain this schedule for long periods of time. Well, I, you know, you mean the? Uh... I mean, we're independent. We're independent contractors, so we obviously go from job to job. But, I mean, we work, like, ridiculous hours. We don't have time to open our mail. We, and our heads are filled with words, so we don't have time to think about stuff. We, we need long breaks be between jobs. It's I, necessary. I hear you. I am now entering the point where I'm all set. My break was great. I am all set to get back there. <laughs> I appreciated the break. I love a couple months of unemployment. <laughs> okay. um, uh, and then we get to a point where uh, uh, the scaries kick in. I'm fine. This isn't a cry for help. I'm fine. Um, I just could. Yeah. I'd like to be back on set. I like the smell of uh, carpentry and fresh paint and all the things you get when you're mm -hmm. on a when you're on a, a TV set. Um, uh, yeah. smell of grease point, roar of the crowd, that kind of thing. Um, you feel mm -hmm. me. Um, uh, let me talk. I do. Let's, let's start for a moment. First of all, Susie Nakamura, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I'm so glad thank you, you are having me. I know you've got a, uh, I know you're doing an eight show a week Broadway schedule right now. Uh, and that's very yes. hectic. So I really appreciate you taking time on your day off. 
I love talking about character actors, I have to tell you. I'm glad to hear that. I'm mean, you're in the right place. Um, why don't we just start with uh, with POTUS? Why don't we uh, we talk about the, the play you're doing? You're doing like a, it sounds, I've not seen it, but it sounds like kind of an old school farce, but set in a modern White House. Correct. And it, it, it is the first all-female farce, uh, to my knowledge, ever produced. Yeah, I think you're right. Definitely ever produced on Broadway. Um, and as a woman, and uh, uh, I just, as a woman in comedy, number one, finally, and number two, it's just been an absolute blast. It's been so fun to be able to swear and slam doors and crawl on the ground and get bruises on our legs from running into tables. And I've always been jealous of the guys because especially in farces, we're always like the girlfriends or the dits and the fact that it's seven women just fucking running around and punching each other just makes me eternally happy. That's really true. Even like the best farces, there is, you know, the one woman is kind of a bimbo and uh, and she's she's sort of a a pawn in somebody else's game. And here you are, you are you are seven chess masters up there. And the cast is bonkers. It's you. It's Julie White. It's Rachel Dratch. It's these, you know, these giants on stage all the time. What ha, had you done Broadway before? No, I didn't. No. I didn't think so. I did theater in Chicago, and right. then I did like television in Los Angeles. And I, I actually auditioned for a show at Lincoln Center, and this this show literally fell in my lap. What was the show like you auditioned for in, in at uh, at Lincoln Center? I, it hasn't opened yet. Okay, so I, I don't know if I want to say. Fair enough, fair enough. But so it was you auditioned for that, didn't get it, but then they saw they they heard about you at POTUS. Uh, I, actually, Julie White uh, threw my name in the hat. That's awesome. So Susan Stroman cast me. And Susan Stroman, who's you know you know legendary Broadway director, did the producers, you know, tons of. Stuff he works predominantly in musicals. I feel like doesn't do a ton of straight plays. Yeah, well, she she was a choreographer, mm. Mm. Um, but she I felt like she was the perfect the perfect director for this because it's all about pace and rhythm and you know farce uh, has to be choreographed where be, people get hurt. Correct, correct. In fact, there was a there was a a table that was six inches too far to the right and. I ran into it because of that. And Julianne Huff was right behind me and she ran into it too. Oh my God. And we're running at, there's one change we're running, we're running full speed mm-hmm. to get to stage right. And uh, I'm fine, but you know. Was it? We, what is that bruise gel? Ar- Arnica gel? Arnica gel, gotta, yeah. Is that helping? That. Oh, really? We use a lot of that in the show. It kind of sounds like you're on a <laughs> punk tour, frankly. But um, the, uh, what, um, <laughs> Did it happen? You said you were doing a quick change. Would it happen on stage that you ran into something? No, no, it was happy. It happened backstage. How does someone with your improv background? Or I think I actually I'm answering my own question here. Does having an improv background help if you fuck up during something like that? If you fuck up on stage? I think so. Only because I think everyone is capable of covering, especially in an ensemble, mm-hmm. like ensemble acting like our our whole focus is making the other performers look good. So if there's an instinct to sort of like just jump in, fill the silence, you know, help cover all that stuff. And, you know, in a cast of six or seven, if everyone is doing that, that just elevates the entire production. It elevates the performances. It elevates the text, everything. And I think everyone's capable of doing that. But I think my improv experience prevents me from panicking. Right. That's the only edge right, right. I have. Everyone, everyone's filling like, in, but you're I, the only one who's keeping a cool. You and Rachel probably are the two who are keeping super cool heads while, when shit goes down. Well, I mean, I feel like everyone's done it. We've only done maybe like 30 performances right now uh, 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 up to this date. And, there, you know, it's the live theater. It's not necessarily because it's a farce. It's because it's live theater. Right. Like things can happen. It can be. A performer, it can be a prop, it can be the set, it can be anything. Um, and as long as you know who you are and where you are and you know the character, I think each any actor is capable of covering. But I think there's that initial panic of like, what do I do? There was once there was one 
like prop problem. Oh, there was a late entrance because of a quick change. And I even, I forgot who covered, but we just, I think I just started talking. But then when we got off stage, everyone said, well, I was about to say this. I was about to say this. I was about to say that. All of that would have covered. Like we all had something in our back pocket, ready to go. We could have gone for 10 minutes. Oh, that's nice to hear. That's got to be really soothing. Yeah. What, a, what, a, what a safe uh, what a safe place to be uh, working, especially for a Broadway debut. Um, we, we're talking about improv anyway. Um, you're from Chicago. Yes, born and raised. In the city of Chicago. In the city of Chicago. Now, you know why I'm splitting hairs about this, right? Because I'm from New York yeah, yeah. and I the, the peop, I know millions of people from Chicago and about three of them are actually from Chicago. <laughs> yeah. I get, I, I get. I rarely meet another person. This is how you tell when they say they're from Chicago. I go, what high school did you go to? Ah. And if they say Niles, if they say Oak Park, River Forest, or Niles, or anything of that, I'm like, okay, well, I can't. I have nothing to say to you. Yeah. I, not, I, I mean, I, we can't talk about anything. Okay, well, you're living in New York right now. So what is Chicago's Westchester County? Because that's the always, that's the big <laughs> fake out that we always get in New York. Like, oh, I'm from New York. Like, oh, no kidding. Where'd you go to high school? Like, Bedford. I'm like, nope, that's not the five boroughs, is it? No, it is not. You're a liar face. <laughs> So what is Chicago's? It would probably be, I would say Niles. Niles, okay, okay. I got a lot of people from or like Displains. Displains. Even I've heard of Displains. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, I, <laughs> I I had a manager from Downers Grove for a while, and it was years before he fessed right. up. It was like, yeah, also- not Chicago proper, like Downers Grove. So sounds like a joke. So you grow up in Chicago, which is the second largest theater town in the United States. And I say that with my chest. I say that with full authority. That's it's absolutely the second. It is in terms of the volume of theaters and how seriously theater is taken. It is second only to New York. Was that was it always an option for you? Did you ever think about doing anything else besides act? I I didn't know acting was a job, but I but I knew that I liked it. But I was sort of set to do something else. I didn't know what it was. So, um, I I, I was. I was really good at math. I know that I'm undoing decades of progress about representation by saying that. Um, but I was really, really good at math. No shame. And I played the piano. So those, those were my options. I've got like, so I've got like six, I've got like six jokes on deck and I'm not going to touch a single one of them. <laughs> not a one, not a one. Uh, we do exist. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I I think I I I didn't know what to do with math. So I thought I had I'd have to be a CPA. Or so I had a cousin that was a CPA. So I just thought like, all right, I'll do that. My dad wanted me to be in the, you know, market somehow, like the stock market or futures, you know, because Chicago is also the home of the board of trade and the mercantile exchange. Oh right, but your but, but did, your parents were teachers, did, right? Uh, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a nurse. Oh okay. And my brother worked at the Board of Trade, so that oh, was sort of I like... Oh, I see. Oh, interesting. Older brother? My older... Uh, yeah, older brother. Okay, okay. So I, I did it... Okay, so I, I think I did, I did a play in grade school. And then I did, like, musicals in high school. And then I joined a theater company right out of high school. And I started doing plays right out of high school, but I still didn't know it was a job. Like it, I thought it was something that you did on the weekends and at night. Um, I started doing improv at bars and in the basement of the Midwest Buddhist temple. Not a joke. That's fantastic. Uh, wow. Wait, <laughs> hang on. Okay. No. Yeah. I love how you think we're going to blow past that. Um, what is it? How do you, okay. How do you get, who, who books the Midwest Buddhist temple's basement? That's my question. <laughs> Who looks at so that space a, and goes uh, improv? Uh, there was a there was a director, producer, performer named Greg Nishimura, and he booked. Oh, he he worked with a lot of Second City people. Yeah, I know that name. And yeah, this he's old school, but he worked with a bunch of. He was always doing live shows. Okay. At either like cross currents or. You know, he would just find a space. And I, I, the first show I did with him was the first show that I got paid, which was really exciting. I think I got paid $35 a week. Yeah, but when you're like, like when you're like show 19 on Thursday, or Friday 20, and Saturday, 
That's like no, I was fa- seventeen. Oh, that's found money though. You must have felt like, oh I my know. god, there's no looking back. I really thought that I had made it at that point because I had done a play and not paid. I, I did a play at Chicago Dramatists and never got paid anything. So I was like, all right, here we go. This is the upward trajectory that I'm looking for. <laughs> this is like a massive, like, uh, something like a thirty five hundred percent increase in pay right there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I really got a, a bump. Uh, and Greg used to produce these sketch shows with improv in it, very like the format of Second City. And the show that we did at the Midwest Buddhist Temple was, <laughs> again, this is in the 80s. Um, I think it was called Sushi Burgers and Other Tidbits or something like that. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, it was speaking to, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming it was speaking to the multiculturalism of the cast. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. I don't. It's one of the. I mean, you you prefaced it by saying it's the '80s. I don't know that that's necessarily verboten in 2022. I think you might be able to get away with a title like that in 2022. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Hard to say. Yeah. Um So it's a little on the nose. What do you? Um. How do you end up at at Second City? How do you end up moving and founding Second City Detroit? Which I, I knew you were a part of that. I didn't realize you were one of the founders. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't one of the founders. I just was in the original cast. Ah, fake news. I don't know where I read I, that, but somewhere, the, somewhere said you were a founder of Second probably City. Probably the internet. Oh, the internet, man. Uh, so are you telling me all that vaccine information isn't true either? Shit. Oh, John, we need to talk. All right. So you end up at Second City in Chicago. You must have been aware of them. I mean, people go like proms go to Second City in Chicago. It's like a thing. It's like a rite of passage to visit Second City. So you had to know it was on the when did you decide like, oh, this is for me. I want to try this. Well, I mean, it wasn't on my radar only because I, I didn't see performing as like a job. I I got a job at um, Dean, the now defunct Dean Witter Reynolds in their futures division. Wow. So you did do <laughs> well, some time going, in finance. Yeah. And uh, I was basically an, an administrative assistant and there, I kind of did like the travel and expense reports for some guys in the corn pit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I had guys in the corn and corn soybeans and then two pits two pits on the Merck. I forgot which they were anyway. Um, and Greg Nishimura said, Hey, you know, cause I, I was thinking about taking classes and he said, if you, you know, go to second city, you could audition for, um, a scholarship cause I had no money. So, and he's the one that said you should go. And I, so I went on my lunch, uh, to audition thinking, you know, at some point in the future, maybe I'll audition for them, but I just want to know what the, audition process is like and so I went on my lunch and then went back and then uh I got called back and I told Greg Nishimura and he goes wow I've never I've never gotten called back so I got I got really excited I went to the callback and then and then that was it I you know it was an interesting process I had fun and they you know they made you do a bunch of shit yeah, what is, what is the second what is it what is the second city uh, audition look like uh, in the nineties? What is that? Uh, how does that go? I know we did we did scene stuff like we did you know six people at a time in a group scene. We did two two people scene two pe- two person scenes. Uh, we did. Have you ever heard of three through a door? Oh yeah, the groundlings do that. Sounds terrifying. Yeah, it's awful. Uh, <laughs> well, do you remember what you're... So it's like you, you come in as a different character each time, right? That's the premise? Yes. and the Yes. And I think the pr- the premise for, at least when I when I did it, was that you're, it's an information booth at a mall and you're asking for directions to a store or whatever. So I think... I don't even remember what I did. I just tried to make them as different as possible. Okay. And I, the only thing I remember is I, I I played a really shy girl trying to ask for where the lingerie store was. That's funny. That's great. That's solid. <laughs> that's really solid. That's a nice That's a nice little contrast right there. That's a playable character. <laughs> uh, and then I was like, great. If I ever want to audition when I'm an adult, I will know what to expect. And then they, they hired me. 
that. Which I could not believe because uh, I had to quit my job at Dean Witter. I was in college at the time, too. So basically, I thought I could continue college. I thought, I, oh, I'm going to do shows at night, you know, and I can go to school during the day. But, I, you know, they hired me for the touring company. So I went on the road almost right away. Hey, everybody, Tim Heidecker here with huge news. Office Hours Live recorded another episode live. It was one of our great ones with the great Rory Scovel, who's got a new special out on MAX. Oh, yeah. And the Trinity's here, DJ Doug Pound. Yes, hello. And Victor Berger the Fourth. Hi, hi, hi. Can't wait for the fifth. We enjoy the heck out of doing the show, and so will you. If you find us on the podcast app of your choice, now. How do you end up going over to Detroit? Uh, I had been touring for a couple of years. I was waiting for a stage, as they say at Second City, which is mean you're waiting to, you know, be cast either at that at that point they had a theater in the suburbs called Second City Northwest, and then there was Second City ETC, and then there was the, the main, main stage. stage right? And you know, when I started, the Second City Northwest was Amy Sedaris, Stephen Colbert, oh God. Paul Danello, Nia Vardalis. I mean, I, I, in ETC was like Rose Abdu, Ian Gomez, uh, Kenny, Kenny Campbell. I mean, it was just like, it. Was, I really feel it was like the golden age. And I can't be objective because I was there, but it really was. It was the golden age. No, that's a dazzling um, array. But your your Detroit cast is no joke city. either. You get you so they they opened up in Detroit and they pulled you over there. Yes, they wanted one person. They wanted a Detroit cast so that people would come. Right. And but they needed one. They wanted one Chicago person to to sort of like I don't know. I don't want to say anchor, but to 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 bring some of the Chicago history, I guess. Well, there's certain stylistic uh, the, things the that you theater. had picked up, I'm sure. But you're in there with like Jerry Minor yeah. and uh, what's his face? Um, uh, uh, Angela Shelton. Yeah. Uh, was there. Who's the big, tall, white guy whose uh, name I can't remember? Ferguson. Oh, Colin Ferguson. Colin Ferguson, right? Yeah. Um, uh, who's a sweetheart. I've met him. He's a lovely guy. I don't know why I can't remember his name. He's such a sweetheart. He's such a nice guy. Yeah. Um, uh, so what brings you out to L.A. and what gets you? So you've got all this massive improv experience and then you end up on West Wing, which is exciting for me as both a West Wing fan and an improv guy because it proved I'm constantly saying, like, let the comedy people do drama. Don't let the drama people do comedy. Um, but let, <laughs> the priority is let the let the comedy people do drama. They're they're going to be. They've got a darkness right under the surface. They're you know they can they can get the 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 heavy beats down, and they're going to handle the uh, yes. the comedic bits. And West Wing has like that sort of snappy Howard Hawks dialogue, but it always gets very serious in its last twenty minutes or so. Yeah. So yeah. how do you end up on West Wing? I just auditioned. I I just auditioned. Uh, it was I, I read the pilot. It was great. I didn't have a lot of experience reading pilots, but I'd read a couple up, uh, up to that point, and I just thought this was. It sounded like theater. Yeah. You know, and I, I even though I I'm I'm an improviser, I was you know I grew up just sort of like revering the text. And you can't say those when it says these, right? But, right. You know, and that's how that read to me was sort of this uh, con well constructed text that had to be word perfect, and it worked. There was a rhythm to it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I I liked it. I and I ate it up. But I I also feel like people who do comedy understand drama in a way because. When we perform, we get an immediate response, which is if it's not funny, people don't laugh. Right. You know, but when you do drama, you just kind of like trust that it, it's working. So, I mean, I think comics or people in comedy were trained to tell the truth. Like we have to tell the truth. Otherwise, we don't get a laugh. And I think that 
And if all you do is I just take that, that skill set over to drama. Oh, yes. I've never heard a phrase like that. I think, I think it transfers well or translates well to drama. It's like we, we, we are, we have to tell the truth. Otherwise we, we won't be funny. So in drama, we, ha we have to tell the truth. And then we just have to trust that even though we're not getting a huge laugh, it's still landing. We have to trust those silences. Yes. Cause that's always the thing that throws me when I go out for, and I, I had to, the reason I ask how you ended up on West Wing is I have to beg to go out to uh, for hour longs, um, and I've I've gotten enough momentum now that I can I can get in and be seen by them. But for a while there, I was just half hour mm -hmm. guy, and um, yeah. I had to really like put my foot down, like send me out for dramas, send me. Out. I want to I want to double my money and I want the experience, and I I I I took to it. I think it's really it's it's a I love the way you can really differentiate from take to take in a way that comedy won't always let you. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, I shouldn't, I don't want to say comedy in general. I'm a specifically TV comedy doesn't let you. Right. Right. Spe specifically multicam specifically, but, but I, I just feel like, yes. you know, when you, when you land a multicam joke, you've landed it. You got it. Don't fuck with it. You've got the rhythm down. It's great. Do it that way two or three times and let's move on. But drama, there's a couple different ways you can go at something. And, and yeah. you find that's your... That's... And you have the luxury of time a little. There's yeah. a little bit of a... There's an unreal time in half-hour comedy. And in one hour, that format just allows you to have real beats. Yeah. You know, like that mimics real life or that it, at least it's closer to real life. Even in something as stylized as West Wing, there's still moments of breath and moments where you can kind of like let these moments, these beats land. Yes. And I think it's up to it's it's more up to agents and casting directors to appreciate that people who do comedy can do drama. And we can we can cite we can cite example after example after example and I, you know, I don't know what else to say. Like, no, it, it, it's I, I, it's just nice being validated. That's all. Um, I, um, uh, we'll go back to comedy <laughs> now. Um, because right after, right after West Wing, or it probably didn't feel like right after, but um, you, you get that great arc on Curb, um, as the assistant manager on in the the restaurant season. And I I love that that season. Um, I, I guess I, one of the reasons I love that season is because it's it's you know a season of Michael York improviser, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. Um. What, well, let me start right there. What was that like? What's it like working with Michael York, who's been you know kicking around for like fifty years now, and uh, was predominantly just like a good looking drama guy in the seventies, but <laughs> has had this sort of weird second act with Austin Powers and Curb. Was he uh -huh. was he a, was he game to play a lawn? I mean, he's got all these seasoned improvisers. Of you, course. it's Jim yeah, Stahl. That's why he was. That's why he was there. Yeah, yeah. Second City, another Second City alumni. Um, of course, he was game. Like that's why he was there. And it sort of reinforces, my, you know, the idea that if you're in an ensemble and everyone is supporting you, and then you can elevate. I, I, you can elevate anyone. Um, and he was just sort of, he was, he was nervous. The first day he was said he was nervous and, uh, or he, uh, you know, he didn't feel comfortable or, or he was just being generous. <laughs> and we basically said, you know, don't worry about it. Just listen, you know, who this character, just know who the character is and just, you know, support, support, support. And I know it's, it's, that's oversimplified, but it really is true. And a lot of trained actors can't even do that. I worked with a lot of famous trained people that can't fucking listen. So, I mean, I think someone who feels he's in over his head is going to be more tuned in to, you know, to contributing that way. Oh, that's interesting. But I did the pilot. I did the pilot of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, shit. Which wasn't a pilot at the time. It was a one hour special. That's right. And, and they, it, it just seemed to be sort of this casual thing we're going to do this thing. We're going to do a one hour special for HBO. That's going to be Larry David's return to stand up. Um, can you show up to this abandoned office building in century city at 11 PM or whatever it was late at night. We have to wait till the office is closed, bring your own clothes, do your own makeup. 
and improvise. And I was like, okay. So that was a straight <laughs> offer. You didn't have to audition for it. I think I did audition for it. I think I, yeah, I'm sure I auditioned for it. Because pe the, uh, people always ask, uh, like, because I did, I, my wife and I did a Curb together in, like, season four or five, and it was, people always ask about the audition process, and you just get a paragraph of, like, this has to happen in the scene, and then you go in and you play with Larry. And maybe Jeff is watching. Oh, we didn't even get that. They were just saying, okay, you're, um, I think I was a set designer or some sort of producer of his comeback to stand-up. Oh, interesting. And I... Uh, I, I knew he. I, I knew that the the character Larry David was from New York, and so I sort of pitched this ridiculous, gritty New York, set, you know, set for him with like fire escapes and graffiti and stuff. Which I, I just tried to pick the opposite of Larry David and have and watch him be uncomfortable. So that, so that, so that I think the one hour special did so well that they made it into a pilot or they wanted to make it into a series. And th that became the curb. So curb you in the, 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 the curb series. So that's, there's two, there's two types of guest spots on curb your enthusiasm. There's mm -hmm. get offended by Larry, make Larry uncomfortable. And yeah. most of us end up in the get offended category. That's certainly where I was. But you're in that rare position of make Larry uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but then you also switch in the restaurant stuff. You're He's coming at you with like, these ridiculous ideas where he shows up with like the Scientology wardrobe. Um, and uh, it's season three. Yeah. I can't recommend it enough. It's such a good season. It's such a good season. And we, we talked about me coming back as a different character. And Larry's solution was like, yeah, maybe, maybe you're just her sister. <laughs> and I was like, okay, should I work? I'll just wear glasses or something. I forgot what the solution was. That's fantastic. We came up with some solutions. That's fantastic. Um, uh, that show is apparently not going anywhere, so it could very well happen. I mean, I, I every time I think they're wrapping up, they come back at three years later and do another season. So you still, there yeah, is still I, a possibility. To come back as a third character? I don't see why not. All right, I, con all right. I constantly think they're going to wrap it up and then, then you know, he's back again. And the thing about bald guys is they don't seem to age. They just like look middle-aged. <laughs> they look middle-aged for That's the rest right. of their life. I was, I was watching that show and I was like, oh yeah, Ted Danson's gotten older. Michael York's gotten older. Larry David is Larry David. He's <laughs> <laughs> just one of those guys, you know, he, he goes bald when he's like 30 and then will look middle-aged until the day he exits this mortal coil. It's the, it's the damnedest thing. Um, You've had a you've got this great career of of a bunch of good series regular work, but these key recurrings uh, on great shows where you you're you're probably not under contract, but they call you and you come in and you crush it, and it's so fun to watch. Um, it's it's a it's a great thing for we got a lot of young actors who listen to this podcast, and I think it's a great way for people to understand the various different ways you can make a living in this business. And one of them is yes. through like this nice steady accumulation of recurring things because they do pay residuals. And I want to talk about, um, uh, well, I want to talk about Goldberg's and I want to talk about Modern Family, actually. So the Goldberg's is an interesting thing for you because you don't necessarily always play characters that have to be Asian. You, 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 Correct. you, yeah. you, you do, which is neat. Because a lot of the actors of color I have on this show end up playing people who have to be that particular color. The uh, Goldberg's is an exception because you're running a Chinese restaurant and and it becomes the the this bone of contention that your food is better than Beverly. What was it like working <laughs> with with Wendy McClendon Covey all those times? I love her. I mean, you know, and she's from the Groundlings, so there's there's just sort of like a fun and a, there's a lightness to, to, you know, that show. And it's just, it's so ridiculous because it's, it's through the lens of a, of a, a person's memory of their childhood. So everything's elevated mm -hmm. a little bit, yeah. you know, like that we do in, in when we recall something, especially anything nostalgic. And I think that's really fun for anyone in comedy to just play a little higher yeah. than normal. And I think, I don't know why Wendy has not won 
fucking 10 Emmys for this. Oh, I don't understand it either. I, I, that I think show. that's widely considered like a an atrocity that like with all due respect to Edie Falco, the fact that Edie Falco has comedy Emmys and Wendy McClendon Covey doesn't is nonsense. I think most of us would agree with that. I don't think she I'm... should win every single year. I don't think that's a hot take. She's so I... fucking good. She's so good and she brings, she's such a, a hard ass and an alpha, but there's, but that only works because she brings vulnerability and tenderness to that part. Yes. Any other person would make that character unlikable. Yeah. And the fact that she can balance that is a credit to her skill. The fact that you're kind of taking her side in, even in those scenes with you, where <laughs> yeah. like, you're just doing your fucking job. You're just trying to serve decent food. And she's like, you're a threat to the family unit. And she will not... <laughs> And it, it's just driving her crazy. She, I, I mean, and she's just, just quietly killing it every season. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. Anyway, I'm. No, no. I don't mean to be mad. <laughs> Yell at you. I, uh, I, I, I will take um, a finite amount of responsibility. But no, it's crazy. I think it just has to do with like over the past ten years. It's the Emmys have just been the domain of cable and streaming and network isn't taken as seriously as it as it could be and yeah there's garbage on network but there's great work being done consistently great work being done great work and and people think when wendy makes it look easy yeah that's that's another just thing because she's good uh -huh. doesn't mean it's not easy mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you know anyway all right. no i couldn't agree more Around the same time as you're recurring on Goldberg's, you're recurring on you're recurring on Modern Family, and that's a very different comedic tone. Same network, um, same half hour single cam format, but as different mm -hmm. as those two things can be. Talk a little bit about what it's like doing Modern Family versus doing Goldberg's. The well, I mean, the premise of the of Modern Family is that it's sort of this documentary, right? right. So it's supposed to be really grounded. And almost even subdued because we've all seen the talking heads on documentary, you know, in documentaries. And uh, it's fun to sort of like play to, I hate saying flex comedic muscle, but don't ever tell anyone that came out of my mouth. It's. I, do you want us to cut it or I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to keep it? I, 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 uh, you're on a podcast, Susie. You understand that we're recording this, right? <laughs> The whole thing, <laughs> there's something, there's something, I find it very gratifying to play small or dry rather, you know, and sort of let jokes kind of come in under the radar, make people listen. I'm, I like to make audiences work a little bit, but I also like to assume they're, at, you know, at least as smart as I am so that they will get this read or this joke or this look or this beat. And, and that's really satisfying for me to do. Also, before I forget, if you do have young actors listening to this podcast, I would like to note that almost every single recurring role that I've had over the past 20, 25 years started as a guest star. There were none of them were, this is a recurring role. Oh, wow. Interesting. They were all, every single one of them were made recurring uh, after I was a guest star. You're, you're flexing again, but I'm going to, I'm actually going to flex on your behalf. You came in there and took this one-off role and we're like, oh, we should absolutely, this should be a thing. We should, this is a great dynamic yeah. between this character and Jesse Tyler Ferguson or Wendy, whatever. And it, and it becomes this this institution on these shows there are, it's another it, you can't r overstate the there's no such thing as small parts thing you really can't overstate that yeah. yeah a small part can turn into a big part we had a great um guest a few weeks back um by the name of you know the actor fred stoller he's a he's a stand-up uh yes. character actor he wrote a great book a few years ago called maybe we'll have you back 
which is the yeah, right everyone everyone dies laughing when they hear hear that title and it should be mandatory yeah. reading for every BFA student it is it's such a great insight into this business but it worked they had you back repeatedly on these shows yeah i'm i feel very lucky um because I didn't know enough about recurring. I didn't know there was even contracts for like recurring characters or anything like that. So well, sometimes there are, sometimes of, there aren't. I always yeah. had a great time. Yeah, yeah. I always had a great time. So it was always sort of a pleasant surprise when they had me back, or they brought a character back, or they created some arc. Um, yeah, Look. it's just, oh, I oh, I just finished season three of Dead to Me. Oh wow, that's that, right! I forgot they were doing. I forgot they were doing a season three. I love that show, and you're great on it. That character, yeah. That character started off as just the one scene of the neighbor bringing the, the casserole. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, uh, first off, thrilled to hear they're doing a third season. I really, really like that show. The whole family digs that show. Uh, actually, we and we probably shouldn't be watching with our children, but we are. And the pandemic set a lot of like our standards out the window, so we started like watching a lot of inappropriate sure. shit with our kids. And we're like, "Fuck it, it's the Hangover." Here's You're still a great dad. You're still a great dad. I don't know. This isn't the podcast for that. But um, point of the point of the matter is, um, it's such a not to like sound performatively woke or anything, but you've got these great roles for women who are over forty. And it's just so nice to see that, uh, just to see these people shining in these roles. And I mean, talk about like uh, bringing people back. I mean, they kill off James Marsden and they bring his fucking twin back in season two. That's how loyal they are to actors over there. <laughs> yeah. Um, has that well, been, has that been a fun, go ahead. Go ahead. But here's the thing. It's about, it's about scripts and arcs and stories and all that stuff, recurring characters. But I have to say a large part of it is, are you great to work with? Are you nice? Yeah. Do you show up prepared? Mm -hmm. Do you show up on time? Mm -hmm. That means a lot to productions and producers and, and directors. And even if they kill off your character, if they like you, they will find a way to bring you back. Mar That's how important it is. Marston is famously That's easy to work with. Yeah. No, it really... There's a, you know that, there's that joke really on, really early on in Spinal Tap. <laughs> Bear with me. There's a moment early on in Spinal Tap where Rob Reiner is talking about how he discovered the band at a club in the, in lower Manhattan. And he goes, I was impressed with their power, their energy, their punctuality. And it's like a throwaway joke, but I took it to heart. <laughs> yes. Have power, have energy, have punctuality. Fucking be there on time. Yeah. Your call time. I don't give a shit if you're going to wait around for a couple of hours. Bring a fucking book. Show up on time. Show up on time. And and television and movies, time is money. If you know, fucking money. So if you show up prepared, you are literally saving them. You are saving thousands and thousands of dollars. Your crew, of course, they want to work with you again. Your crew is cannot afford to live in Los Angeles proper. They are driving back to the San Gabriel Valley. They are driving back to the yes. South Bay. Get them there on time. Yep. Do not make them leave at yeah. midnight if they don't have to. Um, this yeah, is don't laugh during takes. You are they, hold they are your not shit laughing. together. They are not. They do not find you as charmingly funny as you do. A couple bloopers nope. are okay. Don't make a habit of it. By all means, I hate to get political, <laughs> but I will. No, but it's. I mean, that has to do with the. the uh, you know, but that's part of your work ethic. Yeah. Don't fucking break. Do your job. You are at work. You are at fucking work, and it's a great job. And it can be a very, very fun job, but it is a job. This is a workplace by all means. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. There's just so much. Let's talk for a moment about um, whether it's people you've worked with or people you grew up watching. Who were some of your favorite character actors? I remember, like, the first time I noticed a character, like, when I was young was, and this, the story is not going where you think it's going. I was watching Breakfast at Tiffany's. I hope it isn't going where I think it's going. I'd be shocked if it was going there, no. actually. It's not going there. Never mind. Carry on. <laughs> it's not going there. And I, you know, I loved Audrey Hepburn. And I loved, you know, sort of this romanticized version of this mystery woman and her life. And then it's called Breakfast at Tiffany's. She finally goes to Tiffany's. 
And I thought that the guy that worked at Tiffany's was spectacular. Oh, interesting. I thought, oh my God, this is, this, you know, we're, the audience is waiting for this moment. Right, right. Right? For her to interact with this, with the store and the title. And he was just so wonderful and warm and he didn't judge her. And I thought, who is that guy? You have, uh, he made the movie for me, John McIver. Okay. Okay. Thank you for, cause you've stumped me. I'm, I haven't seen that movie in 20 years. And, um, you know, for reasons that, um, we probably don't have to get into, it's not an easy watch <laughs> in 2022. Um, yes, but that like, can you imagine it's based on the novella that, you know, the Truman Capote, Capote yeah. novella, by the way, that is much better than the movie. Right. Sure. 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 Um, Okay. Because the Japanese photographer is like one of the main characters. Oh wow! Okay. He's like, he's like a G- National Geographic photographer, and he ties the whole story together. No spoilers, but anyway. Okay. Um. So then I was like, oh, okay. There's there. Are, you can you can have smaller parts and just be great. Like, I, I still think about that. That I I feel that might have even been life changing for me is watching that. Tiffany salesperson. Wow. That because like I wanted to be him. That's what I wanted to do. You want to be the guy who ties everything up at the end with one day's of one day of work. <laughs> yes. I'll always do the one day job. But to bring I thought he brought this depth and warmth and he gave dignity dignity to the Holly Golightly character. Yeah. That I was like, he's dictating how we feel about her. Oh man, that's lovely. And therefore setting the tone of the movie. That's lovely. And I feel like how can we contribute by the way we we react to people? So maybe we're not I mean, I wasn't thinking about this as a kid, but something about that like resonated. You understood with me. it intrinsically. So then yeah. I I understood it. And then there were people that I would see over and over again. That I was like, oh, okay, so you could do multiple, you could do multiple roles. So I remember seeing Terry Gar, like she was in Th- Close Encounters, and then I like saw her in Tootsie, and I was like, oh, there's that lady. Yeah. And then my mother, my mother, my family's from New York, so like she she knew like who all the Broadway stars were, or you know, like old, you know. movie stars so when we would watch like the blues brothers and there was all these cameos she would explain to me who everyone was but also the you know how the muppet show always had like classic guests Uh uh-huh sure sure milton burrow was on cameos yeah yeah. so like uh, the muppet show really (laughs) shaped my sense of humor and sort of like the, I love sort of the backstage stuff and all the Muppet, the Muppet movies had, the Muppet movie had all those great cameos. The uh, Carol Kane. And my mother would explain, that's Milton Berle. That's Bob Hope. That's what, you know, whatever it was. Orson Welles was. is in the Muppet movie. People forget that Orson I mean, Welles is the head of the studio in the Muppet movie and he, he, he kills it. He's great. Carol Kane they, shows yeah, up there. They could, they could get. Sesame Street too. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street could get whoever they want. Mm-hmm. They, they can get whoever they want. I have, I have, um, I have kids, so I've, I've, I had another resurgence of watching Sesame Street about ten years ago, and um, I am consistently struck by the people they can get. But there's one amazing YouTube clip of uh, Terrence Howard doing um, meeting with Elmo on Sesame Street, and he's so visibly high. And, like, you understand, like, why you would want to be high to do Sesame Street. Sure. But you also have to understand that you probably shouldn't, right? Like, that should be a thing. Like, you should, like, fight yeah. that instinct. But he is, like, you can smell it on him. He is profoundly baked working with Elmo and gets the giggles at weird times. It's a it's a hell of a sight. Um, that's a great answer about Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's a reminder that everything... Everything has to serve the story. Your job is to come in and be a storyteller, to serve the story. If you're, um, take the dead to me role. You show up as a concerned neighbor to bring food. Um, and that lets us know that Christina Applegate's not doing great. 
And yeah. we need to know that early on. That's an important part of exposition, that the neighbors are concerned about her, um, but they're also a little nosy. And it's all, as it's one scene, you were probably wrapped before lunch, but it's crucial to the the arc of the show. I want to talk for a moment about Dr. Ken, um, which it was a straight down the middle multicam sitcom. But I love that character because she's not. It's it's, you know, Dr. Ken's show. He's the lead, but she's not like the put upon sitcom wife. She gets to be funny. She's um, she's a little harried, but she's also really, really strong. It, it's a. It was. It struck me how dimensionalized that character was, given that it was just a, a standard ABC multicam built around a stand-up. And we've seen those before. And sometimes yeah. they work, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes the woman is just straight manning for two seasons. Yeah. But you got to do a little bit more than that, didn't you? I did, and I have to credit Ken Jong because you know he was a producer and he was in the writers' room, and he it was important to him that he portrayed a family that where, you know, two parents contributed equally to the raising of the kids and that they, they, that the parents had a relationship that was equal and intelligent and loving. And uh, especially because, you know, people of color aren't always represented on television, you know, multidimensionally. Yeah. Right. We're, Sometimes we're just sort of like the, the you know, the recurring character or the guest star. Right. <laughs> um, or we're there to support a white male character. And so I think it was important to everyone involved on that show that we pre present this, I mean, dare I say it, normal American family that happened to be, you know, a, a multi, we, we, we considered it a multiracial family because Ken's character was Korean and my character was Japanese. Okay. And so we got to do an, a Thanksgiving episode where we're fighting what kind of food we're going to serve nice. Japanese or Korean. And that I, you know, my character was also a doctor uh, and that they were equals and that they were peers, uh, but they also had sort of this, you know, funny, wonderful marriage where normal parent marriage things happen. Yeah. It, it, it came across really nicely, I thought. And it was, um, I, it was just fun to watch the the chemistry. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever worked with Ken, but I've met him a couple of times. He's always, he's just, he's just a really good listener and just, you know, I guess it's his medical background. He just, you know, likes actors and, yeah. and just considers himself very lucky to be in this world. And I think that. Yeah. And I, I think, when the when the wife roles, especially in like the nineties and stuff, they were they were the straight man, but they were also never flawed, which make made them to me un, not as funny, right? right? It was always the husband that was sort of like messing up or apologizing or, or covering or something. And so I don't know what shift happened, but it's it was just gratifying for for my character on Dr. Ken to also be flawed. Yeah. No, the, uh, the, I, I watched an episode where um, she comes home and she's just had a fucking horrible day. And uh, it feels like, you know, no one is listening to her and she just dives into a bottle of wine. And there was just a, a there was a quality of um, it, that's exactly what, what it is. She's not always the voice of reason. Yes. Yeah. And, and and I mean, and in comedy, that's a luxury for it's a luxury because it's like the farce. It's like we don't get to fucking slam doors and yeah. swear. Yeah. No, it's really uh, it's really it, it's exciting to watch. At the same time, though, watch this segue. You're great straight manning. And I'm I'm speaking of your work on Avenue Five, which I just started watching. I will admit, I just I just got into Avenue Five um, recently when I was doing homework. Okay, season season two is coming at you. I know, I know, I know. Um, I um, uh, it almost feels like, in some ways, it feels like it's on the same continuum as the character from West Wing. Just this 
kind of exasperated woman who has been working with foolish authority men for now centuries <laughs> and <laughs> has hit a fucking wall. <laughs> um, but like you're you you get all the good straight man jokes. Like there's no you're not. What am I saying by this? Your reactions to the absurdity going around you speak for us. We wish we were that witty and fast that we could react the way you are to Josh Gad, the way you are to Hugh Laurie in a really satisfying way. Is that a fun show to work on? It's so fun. That cast is, I mean, unmatched. The cast is bonkers. Armando Iannucci just sort of collects people he sort of handpicks people that are very similar. So I wa- I worked with Josh before, uh, but I, I I don't think I've worked with anyone. I knew sort of I, I worked with Jessica St. Clair before, right? On Afternoon Delight, and I knew Kyle Bornheimer. You know, I knew people because they're you know in this. Well, business, Kyle's but, Kyle's one of my guys. Uh, Kyle Kyle and I are in that like we're now in that middle aged comedy guy thing. And, oh, and so I've worked with him yeah, a bunch of fantastic. times and we've auditioned against each other and we, but I, I see him all the time. Kyle's fantastic. I, I love him. And, and, and yeah, that group of people just, they're the perfect example of how everyone is throwing focus. Everyone like, whether they're trained to do it or they do it instinctively, they just know how to support, 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 support. They're making jokes better by their reaction. They make your jokes better by their reaction. Mm-hmm. They, you know, and everyone's doing, everyone's passing the ball, passing the ball, passing the ball. I mean, Hugh Laurie's a great example of how he's from comedy. He's from sketch he's comedy. He's from the Cambridge Footlights. But people in the United States, people in the United States only know him from House. No, he's. They think he's a dramatic actor. He's an OG I, comedy I guy. Yeah. No, House was a complete departure for him. House was a total fucking yes, departure. Fry and Laurie, um, Black Adder, he he pops in on. Yeah, he um, yeah, it's uh, it, it and terrifying in the Night Manager. Uh, oh, that's right. Terrifying. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 got the goods. He's really fun to watch. You know what you're talking about ensemble work, and I didn't mean to talk about this, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. You did. A, we have something in common. You did the show Go On. Um, with with yes. Matthew Perry, which was produced by Scott Silveri, and it was the show he did before Speechless. Yes, and and I bring tell, tell Scott I said hi. I absolutely will, and I but I bring that up because go on in Speechless, Scott wants to like set up these very very difficult scenarios and then make them comedies. So it's a show about a widower. Um, who's trying to get his life back together and his grief management group. And Speechless was a show yeah. about a, a, a very, very lower middle class family with a, a child that has special needs. And that's a comedy. Did you go on had a bonkers ensemble? I mean, you worked with friends. I mean, you worked with Brett Gelman and Seth Morris. And and Perry is a is a terrific straight man. Perry is like one of the. And Sarah Baker. Oh, yeah. Sarah Baker's in there. That's and- right. And Julie, Julie White, White, who, who you're I'm doing POTUS with. That's with right. right That's right. Yeah. So it's Go On had this incredible. I'm kind of surprised that show didn't last longer, but I'm also terribly relieved because then Speechless wouldn't have come along. And uh, at the end of the day, it does have to kind of all be about me. But what was okay. that? How did you find balancing the the serious stuff with the comedic moments on that show? I think they belong together. That's a lovely answer. I, I say more. And I, I, one of my very early experiences at, at the second city was my producer said, we did regular shows. We did tour shows and all that stuff. But once in a while, my producer would take on like a, um, a benefit gig. And so she would basically say, we're going to send someone and, you know, we won't charge you. But she, but she would pay the actors. That's why I love that. That's why I love Joy Sloan. Okay. But what she donated was there was a bunch of grief counselors, and they're go- they're going to they're going to be counseling people all day. Then they have a one hour lunch, and then they have to go back and counsel more people. And so she um, contributed, like she offered to send a cast to entertain them during their one hour lunch. Oh my god. 
And so we as a cast went and we're going, we're going like, what the fuck are we going to do to grief? What are we going, what kind of show do we do for grief counselors? And we decided to lean into it. Okay. We decided to do a lot of stuff about death. Yeah. And they fucking loved it. I mean, I hate to say it, but we killed. Nah. We, it's inevitable. How are you, how are you going to avoid me. it? No, it's okay. It's fine. And I, it's because I, I think those subjects and humor, not only do they belong together, it, it is necessary. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe as comics, we, it's a defense mechanism, but I think there's a human need to have that dis defense mechanism because laughter isn't just sort of a response. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a relief. It's an evolutionary response. It's like a, yeah. You know, I, I we need it. It's necessary. I wasn't going to ask about this either, and, but I, I feel the need to. You lost your parents when you were kind of young. Yes, and, and and so the idea of of laughter and grief even meant more. You know, it, it means even more now because I've experienced it. Interesting. I, I think it's. I think when you haven't experienced grief or tragedy or trauma in some way, you, you tiptoe around it because, you know, we're, it's something, it's the unknown for us. So we want to be sensitive and we want to be respectful. But for the people that have gone through it, we're, we're and I can speak for myself and, and a lot of people that have, have experienced grief or trauma, we do seek out people who have, um, who, who we can, who we can joke about it with. There's a shorthand. And not have people Yes. There's a shorthand. And not have people sort of shrink back when, and feel badly. That's so good to hear. When when my mom passed a few years ago, um, uh, very suddenly, um, there were people I could talk I'm sorry to. sorry to hear that. I, well, thank you. But there were people I could talk to and and make some of the darkest jokes of my career about. Yes. And yes. and there were people yes. who I could not do that with, and and the difference yes. was was very it was clear cut. It was like, oh, you've been through something fucking awful, and you understand that we're in a safe place here, and that this is how I'm coping, and this is how I'm letting off steam. And yes. and the people who had who you know had both their parents and and grew up in very very safe suburban environments were just not ready for it at all. And I was alienating people left and right with my grief. It was really uh, it was a I hell know. of a thing. <laughs> but you know so yeah you know exactly what i'm talking yeah, about yeah it's, and 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 when you're grieving it's like i i i have no time to console you no right now. absolutely I not just i just want to make a joke please just let me make a joke absolutely no it is and, okay. and they are my jokes to make and you're you're with me or or you're not um here's a different kind of grief watch this segue okay what is okay. what is the role that got away Okay, so when you say that, you mean like what role didn't I get that I wish? Or what was a role that, that like kind of turned into a huge thing? I mean, I think we're all at a place in our careers. Most of my guests are my age or older, and we're all kind of like, it was not meant to be. I move on. But it's always interesting for the listener to hear like, oh, blank was almost this significant role. Um, you know, we always get people on the show who were, oh. who were this close to the office. We get people who, all the time oh, right, who were right. all of them. this close to the office, um, and maybe that's maybe that's your story as well. But um, maybe there, maybe there were, there's some alternate timeline where you were Pam. But but what um, what was the role that 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 got away from Susie? Um, very early on in Chicago, they were having auditions for In Living Color. <gasps> wow! And I. I was working retail at the time, and I remember I, again, on my lunch, went to audition, and um, I must have been early because there was no one there, but, like, I had a great time, and I was, like, I thought I was killing it and all that stuff, and then when I left, no one was there yet, and so I, I left, and I called my agent, and I said, I, you know, I, I, I think I did great. I had a really great time, um, but there was no one else there. And they said, oh, no, no, you were the only one. You were the only one they wanted to see. <laughs> Thank God I didn't know that Yeah, going in. I didn't get it. 
but I was like, they came to Chicago to see one person and to, then didn't to, hire her. And then, do you remember? Her. Was this so in Living Color for our longer, younger viewers? Uh, Living Color was the first predominantly POC sketch comedy show on TV. I don't think I'm saying with Jim Carrey, and it broke Jim Carrey, and it um, and Damon Wayans, and it reestablished and- the Wayans dynasty, um, which was already. I mean, like Keenan and Damon were already working. Um, Sean went to my high school. Sean, uh, the DJ, uh, he was a uh, he. We were in the same okay. graduating class, um, high school for the. And J Lo was a dancer. J Lo was a dancer. That's right. J Lo was a dancer on the show, um, but. Yeah, Carrie was like the 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 lone white guy on that. Was this the first cast of In Living Color, or was this a replacement you know what? cast? I don't remember. You're, you're better off. I don't remember. So you don't remember who 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 they did hire that year? I don't. You, I, I, you're yeah. so well balanced. You're so like living in the moment. It's it's inspiring. <laughs> it's really I, I I strive to emulate that. Good for you. Um, Susie Nakamura, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time on this your day off. I I mean, it was a pleasure. I love I, I love talking to someone that knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's the hope. That's what we're trying to do over here. I, I I think I think it's I think people realize that it's uh I'm I I'm an enthusiastic host at least. Um, but yeah. um, uh, so Avenue Five's coming. Dead to Me's coming. POTUS is on Broadway right yeah. now. Hopefully, it will still be on Broadway when this drops. Theater's tough. Theater's a tough business. It, Theater's tough. Has COVID, but if it all goes well, we glo- we close August 14th, so come to New York. Fantastic. Has COVID fucked you guys up at all? Did you guys miss any shows or understudies coming in? Uh, not yet. Knock on wood. That's amazing, though, because all the... And I think I think it has to do but, with singing, man. The musicals get, get fucked up constantly. The musicals are constantly calling in understudies. No, no. John... We got COVID in the rehearsal process. Oh, interesting. So you guys are all kind of footloose yeah. and fancy free now. Excellent. Yeah, we all got like at least ninety days. Oh. It it tore through it tore through the rehearsal process. Oh, interesting. I shouldn't say tore through. It it very early on, um, it took a couple of us down. Oh man. All right. Well, stay safe. And be well, and and please send my regards to New York. Uh, literally, give my regards to Broadway. How about that? Uh, I will. Uh, and uh, thank you so much, Susie Nakamura. Thanks for having me, it was fun. And that is an episode wrap on the great Susie Nakamura. You have so many chances to see Susie in the coming weeks. Avenue 5 returns to HBO. Dead to Me returns to Netflix. And POTUS is running on Broadway until August 14th. And look, if you find yourself in New York, go to the Half Price Ticket booth. They always have tickets for the straight plays. The musicals are a tougher call, but the straight plays, there are always tickets and good seats, too. Go see a play. Go support some live theater, particularly in these rather dicey economic times. Forever Dog. Household Faces is a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by John Ross Bowie, Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Produced by Ben Blacker. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcast.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. Until next time, when's lunch? Pew, pew, pew.